You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sogol, and if this is your first time joining, thanks for being here. If you've been here since the beginning, thanks for coming back. Today's episode is with debut author Jennifer, Jennifer Herrera, who wrote a stunning novel called The Hunter. It is described as a riveting atmospheric suspense debut that explores the dark side of a small town and asks, how can we uncover the truth when we keep lying to ourselves? Really love this book. Uh, bonus points that it's settled. It's uh, setting is a small town in Ohio where I'm at. Jennifer and I actually bonded over some shared Ohio-related history. Uh, but this conversation that we have is all about her love of philosophy and psychology, which will make a whole bunch of sense when you read this book. It's it's interesting because we talk about it almost like two sides of the same coin. She studied philosophy in college and then got into psychology and a little bit after. And it's just interesting how she thinks about these things. It's a really uh, kind of sprawling, deep and wide conversation that I think you're really, really going to enjoy. And I cannot sing enough praise for The Hunter. It's such a a different type of thriller. Um, you know, I've, we talk about the idea of formulaic thrillers in this conversation and how she, as a, a thriller writer, was able to avoid that. Um, and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Along those lines, uh, and in honor of Jennifer's new book, I want to talk about one of my favorite uh, psychological thrillers that's ever come out. It's a little bit older. It is from early 2019. It's An Anonymous Girl by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. I actually interviewed them both at my previous job. Uh, it's a it was a number one New York Times bestseller, so it's possible you may have read it, but again, it's a little bit old. It is also a kind of psychological thriller that has to do with morality. Um, there is a young girl named Jessica who is looking to make some easy cash, and she agrees to be a test subject in this psychological study about ethics and morality. Uh, the study then goes from an exam room into the real world and the lines between like what's real and what's going on with her doctor tend to blur. And it was really interesting. It definitely is one of those books where you can't stop flipping the page. You want to know what happens next and next and next. And so again, if you are a fan of Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen's An Anonymous Girl, I think you're really going to love Jennifer Herrera's new book, The Hunter. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I love seeing the things that you are all passionate about. And again, I give a free bookshop.org gift card to one person who sends me their passions every single month. And also, if you want some customized book recommendations, just leave me a rating or review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, screenshot that and send it to my email as well, passionsandprologues at gmail.com, and I will be sure to give you some customized book recommendations. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok, same name, Passions and Prologues, uh, where I do a bunch of book recommendations and thoughts on all sorts of stuff there. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. I'm going to let you get to this really, really wonderful conversation with Jennifer Herrera, debut author of The Hunter on Passions and Prologues. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. 
The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Okay, well, Jennifer, I am so excited to have you on the show. Before we started recording, we were talking about our shared history of Ohio, <laughs> but I don't think that's what we're going to talk about today, but I never no, know. My passion until... is not Ohio. Oh, that's okay. It would be great <laughs> if it was, but I never know until I ask this question. So Jennifer, what's the thing you're super passionate about that we're going to talk about today? Uh, well, first off, thank you for having me. And what an excellent question, uh, because I think what you know, what drives any creative person is, is passion, right? Mm -hmm. It's the thing that, that, you know, makes you wake up at 5am or makes you, you know, be bleary eyed and, and still kind of going about, you know, stories in your head or your art in your head um, as the world turns behind you. And I think something for me that I, that I think is a recent passion, but definitely informed the book that I wrote is an interest in psychology and in particular, union psychology. Hmm. So yeah, right. So this is kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, no, I love this. Keep going. So when I was in college, all right, so first off, we're, we're going to come back to Ohio. Yes. So I went to high school in this really small town in Ohio. And, you know, the population was 1300 for the whole town. And um, my school was just really small and it wasn't someplace where I necessarily felt like I fit, like I felt really comfortable there in part because my family was from Cleveland, um, moved to this small town when I was a little kid. And it, you know, in that town, everybody was related. They all kind of looked alike. They all had known each other for generations. And so it was a place where I didn't quite fit in. And so when I got the opportunity to start taking college classes really early as part of some Ohio program, um, I was like, yes, please, I will do that. I will do the thing that gets me out of this high school and, and onto like college campuses. And so when I was 15, I started taking college courses um, and they counted for a high school and college credit. And then soon I wasn't going to high school at all. I was just going to college full time because it was so much better. And the thing is that then when I graduated from high school, I was a junior in college, which was insane. Mm -hmm. But the bright side is it gave me so much time to take every single class I wanted to take. I graduated with like 150 credit hours oh or something. God. Like it was insane. <laughs> but the one class, so I, and I studied philosophy and French and Russian Swahili for a while everything. And for some reason, I never took a psychology class. Mm -hmm. And so I discovered psychology really late in life. When on a whim, I picked up this book, um, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Have you mm -hmm. heard of this? I have not. It's like a book that was really big in the 90s. And it takes union psychology and it, it gives it this very like feminist bent. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think, you know, looking back, maybe one of the reasons I didn't take psychology was I was really intimidated by this, like, all I knew about psychology, right, was like Freud. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And I don't really like that. And he makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. He makes everyone uncomfortable. Um, and, yes, exactly. I was like, I don't think I want a penis, but do I? And anyway, it was like a very, very weird place in my life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you have to edit that out. Or no, not. we're good. We're leaving it. It's great. It's fine. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. It'll live on for eternity. That's right. And so I read this book and I was like, oh my God, because not only was it talking about the human mind, which of course is fascinating, but it was also talking about stories. Mm-hmm. So she was relating, um, you know, the stories we tell ourselves to, to the ways that the mind works. Mm-hmm. So fairy tales, for instance, give you this this strong sense of um, like archetype, they're called archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these mythologies that persist across cultures. And so these mythologies have a certain power in our lives because there are things that everybody thinks or everybody processes the world through, but that we're not always aware of. Mm. Um, so, so symbols, in fact. So like, um, you know, a symbol for a snake can feel like, transformation in some sense, right? Because they're shedding their skin or like deceit and lying. And by communicate or, okay. And the thing is that we communicate in symbols all the time is the idea Mm. and we don't know it. And this is how our subconscious works. So this is why and how we gain access to the things our mind knows that our body or that our body knows that our like consciousness isn't aware of. Mm. And I think this is really fascinating in part because I was a philosophy major I mean, I went to grad school for philosophy. So I'm I'm very aware of this sense of like, you're this, and this assumption that you're like this rational human, right? You're this rational human. You are, you know, this Cartesian person who I think therefore I am, mm-hmm. right? Your mind is perfect is the assumption. And this is like this, this idea that your mind really isn't perfect at all. Yeah. And there are lots and lots of ways that your mind isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, now that, see, this is what happens. I get started talking on something no, and then this you can't great. stop me. I love this. No, this is, <laughs> actually, I want to ask you because, so as a person who like, I, I went to a small liberal arts school, John Carroll here in, in Cleveland, and it's a, a Jesuit school. And so we had to take like you much like most liberal art colleges you hit like a certain number of courses outside of what you're going to actually study and so I did have to take philosophy mm-hmm. and psychology and I was definitely one of those people who I was like the philosophy courses I was just like checking a box I'm like yeah, yeah ubermensch yeah what well, I don't know what that means but I'm sitting here <laughs> and yeah Socratic method you're going to keep asking me questions and yeah I get it like but I was just trying to again like I, don't know, I got like a b minus in and I was like good enough I goodbye uh, but I've only like I, I feel like like a lot of people I got more into like philosophical thinking because of the good place the the tv show that was on recently oh that's so great they actually did a great job with philosophy in there yeah. And I, and like, there's, there's actually a, a book that the the creator wrote and I'll, I'll put a link to in the show notes where it's like, he talks about basically, he was like, I had to learn, I had to take a crash, like a, basically like a PhD level, quote unquote, crash wow. course on, philosophy, on, on philosophy. But I want to ask you, this is a long walk to get to a question, which is what I'm going to do the entire time you're on here. Amazing. So, That's yeah. how I, my mind works as well. Beautiful. Okay. So as someone who both has like kind of recently got into philosophy and also in the past, like 18 months got very big into like psychology and mental health and therapy and all these different things. And I'm much more in tune with like how my brain actually works. Yeah. How does it for you looking at the 
psychology of things. And obviously there's a lot of it in your book too. Like from someone who has such a philosophical understanding of like basically the history of how we have all thought. Yeah. How do you look at psychology? Like, do you think you approach it from a different way than most other people because of your background? I got there finally. (laughs) (laughs) You did. And I, I didn't, if you hadn't said I got there finally, I wouldn't have registered that that was a long question for the record. Well, good. So you it's gave good yourself know. away. Everyone else will know, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> you know, I think that I, I approach my life as a recovering, like philosophic or something, uh-huh. which sounds terrible. I think philosophy is really problematic. Um, for many, many ways. And I didn't know it for a long time. I think one of the ways in which it's problematic is that um, it it takes like a white male viewpoint and puts it at the very pinnacle of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I thought, I thought when I was in school that like Aristotle and Plato, I thought they were all like white men. They're not white. <laughs> like they're nope. like, I had no idea. And so you come away and I thought, you know, women clearly were just useless for thousands of thousands of years. And I, as a woman had to come up and like prove everybody wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's like, it's this, this inherited system where you're only talking about, you know, white men having done really great things. Um, and the the subtext is always, and you have like you, people who are like, you are historically not good enough mm-hmm. um, and haven't ever been. And so I think that, makes it so that I am always trying to dissect how I got to that set of beliefs, one, and two, like how it shaped the things that I think about the world and about myself. And so, you know, it the psychology, I think, changes the philosophy, not necessarily the philosophy changes the psychology. Because I think that, you know, I'm always trying to figure out the world around me. And I, for a long time, I thought philosophy was what could help me do that. Mm-hmm. you know, that meaning of life stuff and this, this recognition of like, oh no, the starting assumptions are so, so flawed yeah. that like, it's only the process that was useful. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, like the process of evaluating arguments, I guess you could say is very useful in psychology because I'll read something like, um, the women who run with the wolves, or I started reading a lot of Jung, which is, um, some of it is very weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to, he has this whole book called the red book, which okay. is basically about his dreams. Uh, and it, it just gets very out there in a way where you're like, wow, you're like really, really into something here uh-huh. <laughs> that like maybe your mind is doing, or maybe like you're losing your mind. I'm not sure Carl mm-hmm. Jung, I'm not sure. Um, but I do think that it's given me this sense where I can look at arguments in psychology and evaluate them better, where I'm like, well, this is suspect. Like I did a ton of logic. I went to at UC Irvine, this um, Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science where I was a grad student. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I think in that sense, I like, I know why Freud is bullshit because I can kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, evaluate that in a better way, but mostly it's the psychology is informing the philosophy. I feel two things. One, I feel like, you know, how when people talk about extremely wealthy or extremely famous people and how they talk about how they've lost touch with reality and people are like, yeah, it's because there's no one in their circle that tells them like, hey, Mm -hmm. shut up for a second or tells them no. I feel like a lot of times that's what happens with like massively famous now, but probably also in their day philosophers, like no one was telling, you know, like Nietzsche, like, hey, 
maybe just take a minute and think about what you're saying. Like, <laughs> Nietzsche know, I, actually, I will say, is one of the good ones. Yeah, I but like, yeah, I was just picking a random. Oh one yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like no. you know, showing my non. Like I said, I didn't really pay attention. Well, to I have to tell you now because because I I out of all of the philosophers I studied, I think Nietzsche is probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. And so I have to I have to just like put this out there that one of the interesting things I learned in Nietzsche. And so I think partially one of the reasons I I like Nietzsche the best is because the person who taught my class was not from the philosophy department. He was Mm. from the German department. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't approaching the world as a philosopher, as somebody who like, um, you know, was like had that very strong viewpoint. But so Nietzsche had syphilis Mm -hmm. and he went crazy. Right. And when he was out of his mind, his sister, um, who is a Nazi, took his writings and edited them to support the Nazis, which I feel like I always have to say, because there's so much of his work that's like not his work. But Mm -hmm. if you look at everything that came before that, you're like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Yeah. Okay. See, this is good to know. This this stuff is like, (laughs) I feel like there are a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of people that we studied in various historical experiences that like obviously how we study them or how we learn them shapes our like enjoyment of them. So like a perfect example for me is like um, Franz Kafka. Mm. I remember reading in college uh, because it was assigned to us the trial and. Oh, I love the trial. Love the trial. It terrifies me. Yeah. It's super terrifying. And we read it. And then basically like the, the thing that we did is that our professor, I don't know if this is true. I've tried to find it factually. I've never been able to identify. Our professor told us that the book was published after he had passed away. And the people who discovered it basically just found like sheets and sheets of paper. And the concept of the book was that like, if you read any chapter before any other chapter, like other than the first and last chapter, you can basically read the book in any order. And again, I, anyone listening, I don't know if that's true, but we did this in our class. We we basically like, we took different and like the whole, and it really adds to, it builds layers onto the trial because the whole concept of the trial for anyone who hasn't read it is like the bureaucracy of like, basically this guy gets arrested for what he never finds out he did wrong. And then he just spends the entire novel, like going through the bureaucracy of trying to have it taken care of. And like, you can basically quote unquote, read it out of order. This is all to say, like, I don't know if that's true, but because that's how I was taught it, I'm like <laughs> fascinated by Kafka now. So I've like read, you know, the metamorphosis and all the different stuff. I'm just like, wow, what a genius. It would, the book wasn't published when he was alive. So it's just like, what are those things where I do wow. think how we're taught it really does. I mean, again, I, it's entirely possible that my professor. And so I, right now I'm talking out of no, my Well, ass, now I'm, like, no, now I'm thinking about, I'm pretty sure it was Kafka who wrote a short story that I loved. It was called the hunger artist. And it was all about this person mm-hmm. who had the power to, is this right? Is this Kafka? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. I was <laughs> like, my mind is deceiving me clearly. Um, but it's all about this person who has this, like who goes on hunger strike and everybody mm-hmm. is so impressed at his self-control and um, they wonder how far will he go in order for, you know, for his principles. Mm-hmm. And then the very last scene is like, you know, he's dying. He's killed himself because he's he gone on hunger strike for so long. And the very last scene 
you know, somebody asks him or something about, I'm going to ruin it for everybody listening. So sorry guys about how he could do that. And he was just like, you know, I never really liked food. (laughs) And for some reason, this is like stuck with me for years and years and years. Because you think about people, other people, and like you're comparing yourself to others all the time. And you're like, Mm -hmm. how are they at a place where they have all of that self-control or they have, you know, the ability to do that thing I've always wanted to do, or they can, you know, abstain in ways I've always wanted to abstain. And you're like, oh, we're just fundamentally like really, really different. Mm-hmm. And like, you can't, you can't necessarily compare. Yeah. There's something in there that's very comforting to me. I mean, a guy dies at the end and that sucks, but like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always find myself wondering when I am reading something that has been like studied to death. Um, like for example, uh, Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants. It's a short story that, um, again, like it's one that I feel like everyone has read in their like AP English class when they're in high school, but basically it's this book or it's a story about this like couple that's like at a train station. Are are you familiar with this short story? I'm actually not. I haven't read any Hemingway ever. Okay. So it's this, it's this couple who's on like this train station and like, it's very, very short and it's about them deciding whether or not to get on this train. And like the, the popular belief is that it's about whether or not they decide to get an abortion, which obviously would be very scandalous for like that time when he was writing about it. But he never really like came out and said that's what it was about. And so I always think about these things, like another one's like Ibsen's A Dollhouse is one. And like, yeah, that one I know. Yeah. I always think about these stories that I love and, but have been like studied to death. And I'm like, I wonder if they really thought about it that way or if they were just like writing a story and then it took on a life of its own. This is apropos of nothing, but you're talking. But I also think it's apropos of a lot of things because, you know, I don't think it's an accident that the things that I'm passionate now are the things that I never had a class about. I never Mm -hmm. took a class in creative writing. I never like outside of like an English class, I never did any of that stuff. And so I don't, I think sometimes the study of things can destroy the thing itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you feel like it's been studied to death. So it's like you're reading a doll's house and you're like, what can I say about this that's new? Like you don't get to enjoy it Mm -hmm. in the same way as like, you know, when I first got my start in publishing, I worked for a small publishing house, um, Europa Editions. Yeah. And they were just coming out with these books, the Neapolitan series by Elena Fronte. And at this point, like nobody had really heard about her or if you mm-hmm. had, like you were a very obscure person who like subscribed to the New Yorker and like, you know, had that life. But like certainly my family, my friends, everyone I knew had not no idea. And I remember reading her books and just feeling such awe because mm-hmm. you felt like, oh my God, like this is incredible and nobody knows about this yet. And your opinions got to be your own because you couldn't just Google something. Like you couldn't just say, you know, what does the the violence in the Neapolitan series mean? And then Google tells you 40 opinions. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what's exciting about literature and especially about new literature too, is that, um, you know, it's not out there yet. So you get to be, you get to be excited and, and get to feel passionate to bring it all around. I get to feel yeah. passionate about things. Man, I could not agree more. Like one of my favorite things about, having spent much of my career in the book world and having a platform where 
I got to promote books. And so therefore I got sent advanced reader copies and I <laughs> sent advanced reader copies is being able to like, I, I got really good at like reading a book beforehand and going to either our, my director or like one of our publishing people mm. and just being like, this is going to be a bestseller. Like I will never forget the first person I ever interviewed was um, Rika Niekamp. She wrote a book called, this is where it ends. Uh, it's a young adult book about a fictional school shooting. She's Dutch, and which is very interesting about why she wrote, because they don't have those. But basically, she yeah. was driving with a friend. They were driving with a friend in the uh, United States, and some, like a school shooting was on the radio. And they were just like, this is insane. And then they ended up writing the definitive book about a school shooting. And like I remember reading it, and I, I stormed into my director's office. I was like, this is going to be a New York Times bestseller. Oh, my God, you called it. And that book well, was huge. There's Yeah, there's some. There's just sometimes, like, um, there's another one, like, um, a Place for Us by Fatima Freen Mirza that mm-hmm. same thing, like it was their debut. I was the first person who ever got to interview her. And that like that didn't make me special. It just happened to be I was at a yeah. at an event that she was at that was like far enough out from the release date that she hadn't been interviewed yet. And like same thing. And you're right. It, it I love being able to read stories. Like, yeah, I love reading historical things that have been dissected to death. But you're right. It's almost like you can't form your own opinion on it because there's they're already there. So it's, it's exciting to be able to do that for new books. Yeah, And like, you're embarrassed. Like if like, say that like nobody else liked a book that you fell in love with and you're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I guess I didn't, I guess this wasn't a good book after all. And like not recognizing too. And I think this is where philosophy comes in. And like, in particular, the way that philosophy is studied in the U S it's just, um, you know, there's this idea of like this right opinion, like this, Mm -hmm. this, you know, um, uh, the structure that is deciding who gets, who's mm-hmm. worthwhile and who's not worthwhile, which books are good and which books are not good. And, you know, in fact, that's what publishing is right now. But, um, but there's the sense of like, oh, well, what are the assumptions that that structure is making? Mm-hmm. And how does that filter who, who we think is worthy and who we think is not worthy? Yeah. So, at what point along the lines did you get interested in psychology? And then like, how did you, because you mentioned the things that you're like interested in now weren't things you like were taught slash studied. So yeah. how did you <laughs> find your passion for it? And then how did it start to kind of affect the way you look at, you know, stories and your life and stuff? And then we'll get into how it affected your new book in a second here. Oh, yeah. I think that we are at a time just like generation generationally where we think about our minds in a different way than previous generations did. Mm-hmm. You know, I think first off, like everybody's gone to therapy mm-hmm. <laughs> or a lot of people have gone to therapy or know what therapy is or not embarrassed about therapy. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that, so we're all sort of taught in terms of how we tell our own stories about ourselves is to start with the beginning, right? Start with what our family was like, Growing up, um, you know, traumatic things that may have happened. We know the word trauma, right? We we talk about that. And then to understand the influence that those things had on our life later on. Like this is something that I think is very, very culturally embedded right now. And you can see it too in a lot of the books that are really popular. I think, you know, I think about Colleen Hoover all the time, <laughs> as I think anybody in publishing does, because she's so wildly popular. Mm-hmm. She's so wildly popular. And I think something that people have recognized about her books is that there's a lot of this sense of like some sort of trauma 
give somebody a problem and then, you know, the problem is solved by the end, but it's always, always based on some kind of past trauma coming out. Mm -hmm. And you look at something like on the other end of the spectrum, the body keeps the score, um, which was a huge, huge bestseller, which you necessarily like wouldn't have necessarily thought would be a bestseller because it's so dense. I don't know if you've read this book, but it is like, oh my God. It is one of the densest books that I've read outside of academia, mm-hmm. but it sold millions of copies. Mm-hmm. Like millions of people wanted to wade through to understand how is it that trauma stays in our bodies and what can we do about it? And so, you know, we're in this cultural moment where we're really thinking about that. And I think, you know, as somebody living in that world, it was like just very curious. I always wanted to know why. And then I, I, on a whim, picked up this book, um, really The Women Who Run With the Wolves, which I knew was a big deal years and years ago, but it was Mm -hmm. sort of before my time. So I missed it. Mm -hmm. Um, And getting the sense of she was creating this, um, you know, this connection between stories and between psychology. Mm -hmm. And to me as a writer, I think that's fascinating because you know, we're always trying to understand ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And in part, the reason, you know, and I guess I could talk, I'm always trying to understand myself, yeah. you know, because you're always making decisions where you're like, why did I, why did I do that thing? And that was like a really bad choice. I mm-hmm. made a really bad choice just there. And I don't get why I did it. Like it wasn't rational. And so trying to like find a rational explanation isn't necessarily the solution. And so wanting to understand those things and wanting to understand you know, how do I, as a person working in publishing and as a person who really loves books, like you can't see my bookshelf right now, but it is packed. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a problem how packed that is. You know, one of the things that really interests me is why do I love the stories that I love? Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, why do other people love the stories that I love? And sometimes it's like, I can't even talk about it. It's not, you know, it's not objective. It's not an idea. So I wanted to understand this connection between the stories that I love and the psychology of me and to understand how they interact to Mm -hmm. change me as a person. And I read this book and it floored me first off because it like dismisses all of these like very masculine ways of viewing stories, which Mm -hmm. I'd never thought of, you know, this idea of like the hero's journey being kind of problematic in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and how, you know, in, in, and these are like stereotypical, right? This isn't, yeah. um, this isn't every man and every woman, but, um, you know, men's stories proceeding as like a monotonically increasing function. So it's like, you have, you know, an inciting incident and you build up and you build up and you build up and a climax in the end, right? Someone, someone at this talk I was talking to about last night, she's like, oh, it's like an ejaculation. <laughs> Here we are back to penises. Yep. Um, <laughs> she's like, men's stories are like an ejaculation and, and women's stories are, are cycles, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of like, like, you know, every woman has a cycle, every, like, we have a lot of like cycles that women go through with their lives, like lunar cycles. Um, and so understanding stories in terms of cycles and understanding your life in terms of cycles. And it, it took off so much pressure, I think, to think of my life as like, I constantly have to be improving and I have to be changing mm-hmm. and I have to be, you know, getting to a place yeah. versus here's a five-year cycle where I'm going to become a certain, like a different person. Mm-hmm. And then in five years, I'm going to become another different person. And so there were a lot of ideas like that hidden within the book that changed the way that I saw the stories that I told and mm-hmm. the stories that I consumed. That is so thoughtfully presented and like I really do love that because I've often thought about again like having a long career in in publishing and book promotion like part of the thing that I 
had to do it overdrive was like we promoted books of all genres so it was really great mm-hmm. because i wouldn't think in the past that i was a romance or cozy mystery person spoiler alert, i am like i if a book <laughs> is well written i, I yeah. will read it but same my favorite type of books i always like to say i love uh small stories with big emotions and yeah. the way that i can best describe it is wendell berry is one of my favorite authors mm-hmm. i don't know if you've done anything he's done but like yeah. he's a pastoral like he writes agrarian um his fiction is set in this tiny town in kentucky his um his nonfiction is literally like he writes essays and poems about nature his family has lived on the same farm for like five generations in kentucky and like he thinks he'll write like beautiful prose about like the soil and it's just and i it, for a long time i was like what and like i love other there's like the finder of forgotten things by sarah mm-hmm. loud thomas is another book that i adore and i think about this stuff all the time and like i finally realized like oh i love these books that force me to slow down and they're like old older people looking back on their life mm-hmm. um another one i think about all the time is lillian boxfish takes a walk like all these books that i'm always recommending to other people it's people who are in their 70s 80s and 90s looking back on their life mm-hmm. and i'm like oh it's because i'm a deeply nostalgic person who works <laughs> in tech and has to like constantly like you said i'm constantly like yeah. oh that posted great but what's the next thing i can write about to get to the next um, you know, to get in front of the next group of people that we're going to sell our product. And it's mm-hmm. like, when I stop working, like, I want to slow down. And then I want to think about things that have previously yeah. happened. And it's like, oh, th- this makes sense why these are the types of books that I love. And then the book that I'm currently querying, the main character is an older man who's looking back and <laughs> like, Jesus, I am such a parody of myself. But, <laughs> but I do think it's like, I've stopped asking people like, do you see yourself in your characters? Because like, to your point, like, you you're always examining your own mind like when you're writing something even if it's people who are entirely seemingly unrelated to you like you're going to write your own mind into this these characters like it's going to happen you just can't yeah of course and your own mind is just like this this vast place yeah it's not as though you have this singular personality mm-hmm. you know that you know you're just one person you're many many people like like you were talking like you're this this tech tech person mm-hmm. and then you're also this person who's this old man like looking yep, back 100%. on and you know on the rolling hills the, I mean I'm literally people won't see this unless I put something on Instagram I'm literally wearing like a derby hat like you would see like a 78 year old man wearing in Ireland true. like I almost I said something about your hat when we got on the call I am who I am <laughs> I love it but I think like and then there's this you know union book um about the unlived life I you know, I think it's called like loving your unlived life. And it's this idea that for every choice we make in our lives, there's a choice that we didn't make and how the older we get and the more choices we make, the more doors close behind us. You know, me choosing to work in publishing means that I'm not going to work in academia anymore. That side of my life is done. Once we get old enough, to have so many closed doors behind us is like when we get these crises mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, who am I? And I feel trapped. I feel trapped. Oh my God. But that's going to happen no matter what you do, no matter how charmed your life is. Like mm-hmm. you are having an unlived life that is beside your lived life. And it's like, how do you reconcile the fact that there are two sides of you, mm-hmm. the life that you have and the life that part of you wants? Mm-hmm. And so these books and, and these ideas work with how do you and in this case you know he recommends writing about the life that you wish that you had mm-hmm. so that you can work through that world so that you feel like you get both of them like through yeah. creative writing 
-hmm. You're able to live your unlived life. And in part, you're able to see it as less of an idealized space. Mm -hmm. Because like, I'm sure, you know, the book that you've worked through, like this character is not totally happy with their life all the time. They Mm -hmm. have problems and they have conflict. And if you can view that side of your world as not being perfect, then you're less sad about not living that. Mm -hmm. And you're in fact able to live aspects of it through your creative work. So did you, do you think that you apparently wanted to be an NYPD detective? <laughs> so I, this is my smooth transition to your book, The Hunter. And like I mean, hearing you talk very about, deep. <laughs> hearing you talk about all this stuff, I'm like, oh my God, I totally understand a lot more of the book now. But like, <laughs> like do you think like all of this influenced your book? Cause it is, it's, it is very yeah. suspenseful and there's, you know, a lot of like mystery and there is like potentially murders that people are investigating. It's like, (laughs) how did this all fold into writing your own book? So, you know, when I was in college, I studied all these languages. Mm -hmm. And because I did that, I was actually recruited by the FBI at one point. Ooh. So I, I, I don't know if I still have the letter, but I was very excited about this. I showed it to everybody. Um, but I don't what the FBI I, probably wants you to do. Yeah, exactly. They're like, please take that that thing that, that we sent you in confidence and mm-hmm. post it everywhere. So for a long time, that idea was in the back of my head. But I knew at the end of the day, like I'm not the sort of person, like I'm not great at rule following and I'm not great at like regimented things. And mm-hmm. so that would be a terrible idea. And I have a lot of like, like moral qualms about, about that whole world Um, probably wouldn't be a good idea, but you know, it's still in the back of my head, this, you know, this knowing the world in a different way. And I think like, if you're a law enforcement agent, you know, in the FBI or the NYPD or whatever, and if, you know, if it's, if you're a detective, you see the world in a side that I don't as a person, mm -hmm. right. Who like, works at a computer, like I'm never going to know the world in that way. So I think there's a curiosity there that I'm into, but I think the deeper thing, and this is about Lee in general as a character, is she's somebody who's really driven by her intuition and she finds power in it. So one of the things I wanted to do again, as like a recovering philosophic yeah, is to, um, you know, to have a detective who was a female who wasn't trying to act like a man in order to have access to power. And again, like as somebody who was like one of the only women in her department several times, that's something I did. Mm -hmm. Like I tried to be more masculine generally because I felt, and it was true that it gave me access to power. And so I wanted somebody who, you know, wasn't your Sherlock Holmes rational detective in that way, but who felt very, very like feminine to me. Mm -hmm. And the thing that feels the most feminine to me is the sense of being deeply tied to your emotions and to your intuition. And so she's somebody who's really, really driven by her intuition. And she is not going to do something that feels wrong to her. And I think that's something that I really envy, you know, because again, I'm still like working through that that sense of like, there's something wrong with being emotional. There's something wrong with being really womanly. Like I wrote um, an essay for Crime Reads that was about how I feel, and there are you know reasons for this, but how I feel that when I exercise the most female parts of me, um, like sexuality or being a mother, that that makes me feel like I'm less safe, like I'm less like worthy of the world's respect and attention. 
Right. And that ties into crime fiction because those are the people who are often dying, especially people who exercise their sexuality. So there is something there of an unlived life in Lee, but it's, it's aspirational for me. It's this Mm -hmm. idea of like, wow, like, wouldn't it be really powerful to like be that intuitive and to like have faith in that, like have real faith in that so that you don't need to play other people's games, Mm -hmm. right. To play this, like, you know, this institutionally privileged person to play as that person in order to feel powerful. Yeah. And I feel like one of the reasons I love the book so much is because being in publishing, I I know you have had access to these books. Like there is always like I feel like if you are a talented writer it in the suspense thriller area there's a opportunity to write very formulaic books that people will still buy and mass and i like you know (laughs) it's like want to some respect yeah exactly and but i feel like what i loved about your book is it hits all of the notes of like a thriller where it like keeps you being like wait what's about what what's wait hold on wait a minute what's going on (laughs) but there is this like other layer to it and i and i like i said having spent now an hour chatting with you like I get it. It's because you have this background where like you're thinking about you've thought about how the mind works in like from multiple ways now in like these different like philosophically and psychologically. And like I've I feel like that it's so evident in the work. And and I'm curious for you as a person who is constantly seeking like greater knowledge about these different things. Did writing this feel cathartic or did it make you be like okay I want to write 15 more books now like what what was the feeling (laughs) while you were going through it I mean both I guess that's fair because I think you know one of the things I mean at first it very felt very cathartic this idea that you know there's a lot of there are a lot of complications that happen in Lee's life and in Lee's personal life but the story is the story the mystery is the mystery there's Mm -hmm. a you know some deaths there is um, a plucky detective and there's a resolution. Like mm-hmm. you get the the comforting arc behind Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Which, you know, I want when I read a book. Um, <laughs> but there's also like all of this like messiness and this way in which, you know, Lee over the course of the book is able to understand some of the, the things that she doesn't understand about herself and some of the things that she's repressed. Like in order to be a detective, you know, and I, and I talk to a lot of people who work in, in fields where, where they have to have really high walls up, right. Where they're dealing with a lot of like tough shit. Um, you know, she has these really high walls that she's built around her life, like to make it so that she, she can repress a lot because she's mm-hmm. dealing with so much and she figures out, you know, how to be okay with taking those walls down. And I think that is very cathartic. And I feel like that is a complete story and I'm very happy with that story. But I also feel like, like, as I was saying before, like women's stories are very driven and, you know, women, you know, women meaning a a broad, Mm -hmm. a broad category, not necessarily pertaining to women in particular. But women's stories are are cyclical, right? They're moving through these cycles that last for X number of years, and then you move to a new cycle. And so I'm still very interested in figuring out like Lee's next area of growth and how through um, looking through the lens of a murder, because, you know, I love a good murder, how she becomes a different person still. Mm -hmm. And luckily the publisher has agreed. So there will be more books in this, in this world. The best news. That's the best. (laughs) I love that so much. You heard Ah. it here first. 
Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I, well, I absolutely loved it. I, again, like this is my favorite thing about doing this podcast is again, getting the book early is a nice perk as a, <laughs> as a book podcaster, but then like reading it and it has always been my favorite thing um, to talk to authors. And honestly, a lot of the stuff that was something like my favorite conversations with people has been stuff that was not recorded. It was like after the fact when I would nerd out yeah. about it, but it is like getting to hear you talk about these different parts of the book and the story and like your own mind being like, oh, okay. I understand <laughs> a little bit more. It's, it's so great. And um, so I always, I always leave the podcast with, with one last question and it's to let you give a recommendation to people. It can be, um, it can be a book. It can be, I've had someone say like, go for a walk. Like it can be, I had the first oh. episode I ever did um, with Mallory O'Meara about powerlifting. She recommended a protein powder. So like what's something what that you What protein powder did she recommend? Oh, her? I will find it. It was, I'll go um, look. it's like a woman, it's, it's amazing. It's like a woman created company, but the protein itself is like specifically created for like non-gendered purposes. Cause like Mallory's whole point, she's like, it's so gross. So like so many protein powders, it's like, yeah, you, it's got creatine in it. It's got this specifically built for yeah. women or specifically built for men. And yeah. she's like, so I will, I will find it and I'll, I'll Thank send you. it to you. But, I'm very yeah, into um, this. <laughs> yeah. But so what is something that you want to recommend to people that you think they should know about? This is such a big, powerful question. I know. Uh, and I will stop myself at one, but I'll, I'll stay on theme. I'll stay on theme. I think that I would recommend The Women Who Run With the Wolves mm -hmm. in part because it was so powerful for me. And because so it's a really thick book, which I think can be intimidating to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, the chapters can be read episodically. You don't have to read everything like from beginning to end. And it's just what it is, is it's dissecting story like stories, fairy tales you've always heard mm -hmm. and, um, and saying what those mean and what they do for us psychologically. And I think that's really powerful because you can, you know, you can leaf through the pages and you can say like, what is the story that like as a kid always meant the most to me? Like, what is the fairy tale that I couldn't get out of my head? And then seeing, okay, well, how do we, you know, psychoanalyze that fairy tale? Mm -hmm. And you can understand maybe the needs that you had as a kid or the needs that you have as an adult that you didn't necessarily know that you were aware of. Um, <laughs> this is hilarious, but my sister-in-law who is 10 years younger than I am, came to stay with us last week. And we were talking about um, children's books. Mm -hmm. And you know that that children's book about the meatballs where it's like raining meatballs? Oh, yes. Sunny, uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Yes, yes. She said this story would make her cry every time she read it. Really? <laughs> like, she's like not an emotional person, but this mm -hmm. story would like have her like sobbing. Mm -hmm. that story and another story about a carousel horse where the horse runs off and can't find the rest of the carousel. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> and so like we were talking about these books and she's like, I'm not like an emotional person. I have no idea. And like finding the patterns of like, okay, what were these, what do these stories have in common? And how does that reflect on like how you felt as a kid and like what was going on and, and who you became as a person at the end? She was like, oh my God. Wow, I had no idea. And she had this sense of like having insight into her own world because of like just understanding what she connected to and psychoanalyzing those, even as a child. Mm -hmm. And that I thought, you know, especially as I was reading The Woman Who Run with the Wolves, that was such a powerful experience to have to like to take something so simple and to build it out so that it's like by loving it, um, you know, you're actually, you know, even as a child being able to express something 
that you felt very deeply, but didn't have the words for because you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Ah, I love that so much. The, your book is fantastic. I'm so excited that there's going to be more of them. This was just such a wonderful conversation. Jennifer, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I had such a great time. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 